Hey, City Church, it's good to see you guys online. I'm so glad you've joined us uh, for this message. Uh, if you've been hanging with us through this series, we've been exploring the incomparable impact that Jesus has had on human history and the human condition and how that reflects and reveals just who Jesus is. Jesus has forever changed the way most of us experience life and what we value in life. And Jesus started a movement he called the church that he intended would carry out his radical uh, teachings and influence our world and make it a better place. And as I've acknowledged throughout this series, the church has not always gotten things right. In fact, sometimes we've gotten things tragically wrong, and I've been honest about that. But when we have gotten things right, when we have returned to the radical ethic of Jesus and his radical way of life, we've gotten a lot of things right, and we have made this world a better place. Today, I want us to look at a virtue, basically, that Jesus introduced to the world. And he did so by taking what was at one time a despised characteristic and he turned it into a prized characteristic. And I think this virtue, this characteristic is more needed now than ever in our culture. Why do I say that? Well, I came across an article recently in Psychology Today, and the title of the article just struck me. It's entitled, Why is Narcissism Rising in America? And in this article, uh, Boston College psychologist and professor, Dr. Peter Gray, he recounts 30 years of studies, of multiple studies that all reflect and reveal that 70% of people are more narcissistic now than in previous generations. And Dr. Gray defines narcissism in this way. He says it is an inflated view of self coupled with relative indifference towards others. And Dr. Gray adds that those who have this kind of inflated view of self, they end up being, becoming more unhappy, more angry, and more depressed than others. Now, I'm sure most of you watching me today are thinking, oh, Pastor Brent, yeah, you need to talk to those people who have that inflated view of self. I mean, most of us don't think of ourselves as having an inflated view of ourselves, right? We think it's other people who are selfish. We're not selfish. But that's why I think this uh, study in this report by Dr. Gray is so significant because the facts tell us that 70% of us, come on, 70% of us are more Inflate, have a more inflated view of self today than in previous generations. And this inflated view of self, it's wreaking havoc in our relationships. It's causing conflict within our marriages and families. It's wrecking some friendships. It's wrecking our workplaces. And it's causing animosity and division within our cities and in our communities. What if the greatest need to make your relationships great is not for other people to get their act together. What if it begins with you? What if it depends on you and me? Now, when Jesus began his public ministry, 
He did so during a time where the Roman Empire ruled the known world around the Mediterranean. And it was an empire that actually valued uh, narcissism. They valued this inflated view of self. And they, they, they used a term called self-honoring. They sought to be honored by other people. And so in their culture... They jockeyed for positions of power that would make them feel great and where they would have authority over other people so that they could tell other people what to do and so that they could gain for themselves. And so that's the context into which Jesus begins his public earthly ministry. And he elevates a virtue. He begins to cast vision for another way of viewing and using whatever power and authority we have. Now, I don't know if you ever thought of it this way, but each of us has a certain amount of authority and power. It's based on various roles that we have in life. And so I want you to think about the various roles you have and what kind of power that you have based on those roles. So like if you're a parent, you have certain authority and power as a parent. Or if you're a boss, you have certain authority and power in the workplace. Or if you're a teacher, you have certain power and authority in school. Or if you're a police officer or a judge, you have certain power and authority in our community. Then there's political leaders who have authority. Uh, there's board members. Maybe you serve on a board where you have some authority. Maybe you're an HOA rep. Maybe you're the coach of a team or the captain of a team. Or maybe if you're a student, maybe you're on student council. And all of these various roles that we have in life come with a certain amount of authority and power. And don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with having positions of authority and power. I have some uh, positions of authority and power. I mean, like in the church, I'm the, I'm the boss here at the church. So there's nothing wrong with having positions and authority and power. The key, though, is how you use your authority and power. And so I want to ask you for a moment to think back again to these roles that you have. Because you see, who determines whether you're using your power in a right way is not you. It's not the person who has the authority and power. It's those that you are over, those that are beneath you. And so how would the people that you have authority over say that you use your power? Parents, what would your kids say about the way you use your authority and power? Would they give you a thumbs up or would they give you a thumbs down? Kids, don't answer right now. <laughs> Bosses, how would your employees say you use your authority and power? Teachers, how would your students say you use your authority and power? And maybe I have some political leaders watching. What would your citizens say about the way you use your authority and power? Self-focused people, people with an inflated view of self tend to use their authority and power to gain for themselves and to elevate themselves. And it's that perspective of, of authority and power that Jesus seeks to change as he begins his movement. So let me, let me set up the scene. For three years, Jesus has been training uh, his hand-picked disciples, and he's preparing to pass on his authority and his power, his power to them. Well, as he nears the end of his public ministry, uh, Jesus predicts to them a, a very shocking prediction. He tells them that in, pretty soon he's going to be arrested He's going to be beaten, he's going to be put to death, but then he's going to rise again on the third day. Now you can imagine how such a shocking prediction would have impacted the disciples. I mean, they must have been in shock, right? I mean, what would you be thinking 
If, if this man that you had been following around for three years told you and predicted to you, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be killed, but I'm going to come back to life on the third day. What would you be thinking about? Notice what Jesus' disciples were thinking about. This is Mark chapter 9, verse 33. So they came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. <laughs> okay, can you believe that? I mean, think about this. Jesus is nearing the most important week of his life when he's getting ready to be arrested and put to death for, for your sake, for my sake, for the forgiveness of our sins. And, and if you think about it, this is a very intimate moment. Jesus, I think he's sharing some of the anxiousness he's feeling as this impending uh, prediction is getting ready to take place. I think he's wanting them to empathize with them. But instead, what are they thinking about? They're not thinking about Jesus. <laughs> They're thinking about which one of them is the greatest. Okay, so what's going on here? They were thinking about which one of them was the greatest because they held a certain view of greatness and power. I like to call it the, the power pyramid view of greatness. So follow along with me. The power pyramid view of greatness, if you, if you picture it like a pyramid, it's all about who's on top because whoever's on top has the most power and therefore if you have the most power, that's what makes you great. And so I, I think we've seen this in, in society uh, before. So let's take an example from a, a business. Let's say maybe a corporation. You ever, you ever seen an org chart? Most org charts look somewhat like a pyramid. I mean, who's at the top? The CEO or the boss. And then the next level in this pyramid usually has chief executives of some kind. And then at the next level, you have like department directors. And at the next level, you have team managers. And then at the very lowest level, you have whatever the frontline workers are. And the power pyramid view of greatness seeks to attain higher and higher positions and roles within the organization to move your way up. And if you have a faulty view of power, it's to gain more power for yourself so you can tell other people what to do and gain more for yourself. And so uh, Jesus is addressing this view within his own disciples. And so notice how Jesus responds to what they were arguing about. This is Mark chapter 9, verse 35. Sitting down, Jesus called the 12. And he said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. So here Jesus responds to their picture of the power pyramid by basically turning the power pyramid upside down. Because what Jesus does is he elevates the idea of being a servant, which was the lowest position you could have in the first century Roman culture. And here Jesus tells them that whatever authority and power you have, you should not use it for yourself. You should use it to serve others. And so here Jesus offers what I'm going to call a selfless view of being a servant with whatever power and authority you have. And to do that, and now I'm going to get to the characteristic or that virtue, to do that takes humility, humility. And so I've pieced together a definition from Jesus' words and teachings about what true humility is. Humility is the decision to disregard your status and rights by using your power and authority 
to serve others instead of yourself. Now, you, 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 you'd have to understand how shocking this statement would be to Jesus' disciples. Because historically speaking, up to this point, nobody valued the characteristic of humility. And certainly nobody would want to be called a servant. I mean, it's hard for us to grasp this. In our day, if we say someone's a servant, like, hey, that Kevin is a real servant, or Mary is a real servant, we're saying something positive, right? But in their day, that word would never be used in a positive way. If you called someone a servant, it was a slam. And nobody in the first century valued humility. In fact, it was a despised characteristic. And it, it was a vice, not a virtue. In fact, it was viewed, humility was viewed as a sign of weakness that somebody else could take advantage of. And so nobody in, in, first, in the first century, and really throughout ancient history, going all the way back to the beginning, this is what historians tell us. This is not, not me, the pastor, saying. This is what historians tell us. Nobody in ancient history before Jesus valued humility at all. And so when Jesus elevates this, uh, this, this virtue, it's going against everything in their Roman, uh, Roman Empire culture and society. In fact, the whole Roman Empire was organized against humility. In some ways, the Roman Empire organized their society sort of like airlines organized their customers. I mean, every time I go to get on an airplane, I experience the power pyramid. Do you know what I'm talking about? So I'm waiting there to get on the plane and there's this whole power pyramid about who gets to go on the plane first and then who goes next. You ever experienced it? So I'm waiting there for the plane and so at the very top of the pyramid, it's who? First class. First class and they get to walk down a certain road that nobody else gets to walk on. It has red carpet. Nobody else gets to walk on the red carpet but first class. And of course, that's never me. And then the next level is the platinum level, whatever that is, and that's never me. And then there's the diamond level, and then there's the gold level, and then there's the silver level, and that's never me. And then they take the rest of us, when all of those levels have, have boarded the plane, and they break us up into zones one through five. And because I'm pretty cheap, I buy the cheapest flights I can get, I'm off in zone five, which means I get onto the plane last. When all of the overhead storage is gone, I get a middle seat, and the seat doesn't lean back all the way, and I've got a crooked tray. But I'm not bitter. I'm not bitter. You know, I'm actually pretty glad I haven't been able to fly for six months. You know what I'm saying? Now, I tell you that, that story because I know some of you have experienced that. Just, it's just a little taste of the power pyramid in our culture. Where, well, imagine an entire society organized like that. That's what the Roman Empire was organized like. So at the very top of the power pyramid, there was the Roman emperor or Caesar. At the next level in the Roman Empire were about 600 or so senators. The next level below them uh, were the wealthy landowners. They had quite a bit of, of power and clout and authority in their culture. The next level were government officials. And then the, the, the rest of the, of the people were basically sort of divided up like zones one through five. There were the citizens who had a certain amount of rights. There was a group called the freedmen who had very minimal rights. And then at the very, very bottom of society were the servants who had no rights. And so for Jesus 
to tell his disciples that the greatest people are the servants of all. What he's teaching is totally radical for their day. And Jesus is essentially turning the power pyramid upside down. Jesus is saying, you know who's the greatest in my kingdom? The greatest are the least. You know who's the greatest in my kingdom? The greatest are the humble. You know who's the greatest in my kingdom? The greatest are those who serve others. That's what makes people great. Well, it's evident that this first teaching Jesus gives his disciples about greatness and servanthood and all, it's evident that it did not sink in. So track with me. A few weeks later, Jesus is now traveling with his disciples once again, only now they're going to Jerusalem for the last time. In other words, Jesus is getting ready to experience you know, some very painful things. And so once again, he predicts that he's going to be arrested, beaten, spit upon, crucified, but then he's going to raise, uh, come, up, uh, come back to life. He's going to be raised from the dead. But notice once again, what his disciples are thinking about. Notice how the power pyramid surfaces again, just after Jesus makes this prediction. This is Mark chapter 10, verse 35. Then James and John came to Jesus and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Jesus asked, What do you want me to do for you? They replied, Let one of us sit on your right and the other on your left in your glory. Okay, so what is their request about? What's going on here? Well, it's evident that throughout their three years of traveling together that all of the disciples were like co-equals in this little traveling group of leaders. And now the, the disciples are beginning to picture Jesus' kingdom because throughout his ministry, Jesus talked about the kingdom of God, that he came to bring the kingdom of God and that he was going to be the leader of this movement and he kept calling it the kingdom of God and kingdom of God. And in their day, people understood certain things about kingdoms. In their day, if you were a king and you had a throne, there was a seat to your right and the person sitting on your right seat was the second most powerful person in your kingdom. And then there was a seat to your left. And the person sitting in that seat was the third most powerful person in your kingdom. And so when James and John asked for the right-hand seat and the left-hand seat, they're asking for the, the greatest roles, the greatest seats, the, the best positions within Jesus' kingdom. They want the great positions because they want great authority and great power. Notice how the other 10 disciples respond. This is Mark 10, 41. When the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. <laughs> In other words, they got mad because they didn't think about asking for those seats first. <laughs> now, the request of James and John and the angry response of the rest of the disciples shows how deeply embedded this power pyramid view of power was within them, within their hearts and within their cultures. And, and you know, it's hard for us to grasp because we, like, we don't have kings and thrones and seats on the right and right. But, you know, it's hard for us to grasp this whole notion of the symbolic uh, picture of power being where you sit uh, related to a kingdom. But don't we have other things in our world today where there's a kind of symbolic power based on proximity, like where you sit? Like, okay, in your house, who gets to sit in the, the really comfortable rocking leather, le leather rocking chair? The person with power. Who gets the best bedroom in your house? Mm-hmm. At your office place, who gets the corner office with the windows? 
Mm -hmm. And who gets stuck in the cubicle in the middle of the space? And who gets the parking space right by the entrance of your office building? And then don't we have the whole power by proximity within our cars? Okay, so I'm asking a question. What's the most powerful seat in the automobile or in the car? Driver's seat. Where's the second most powerful seat in the car? Shotgun. And where do all of the less honorable people and kids sit? Back seat. That's right, you get it. Who sits at the head of the table at Thanksgiving dinner? Who gets the house on top of a hill? And most importantly, who gets to sit by Superman in the Hall of Justice? Well, anyway, Jesus' disciples were focused on their seat, their place, their positions within the power pyramid. Notice how Jesus responds once again. This is Mark 10, 42. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. And so here Jesus is acknowledging what they all understood. Everybody understood that when you had a position of authority or power, you used that authority in their culture. You used that authority and power to lord it over people, which meant you told people what to do. You got them to do what you wanted them to do. And that normally benefited you, not them. And so nobody wanted to be lorded over. Everybody wanted to be in positions where they could lord it over others. But Jesus continues, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Do you get what he's saying? Jesus is saying, look, we all know how, how this world works. This world that I came into, we know how it works. The Romans, they have their Caesars and their senators and their soldiers. And we Jews have, have our, you know, our pyramid too. We have our king and our royal officials. And then we have the Pharisees and Sadducees and then everybody else. And we know that they have positions of authority and power and they use them to lord it over other people to gain for themselves, to tell other people what to do. But do you hear what Jesus is saying? Not so with you. Not so with you. And what he's saying is not so in my kingdom. That's not the way my kingdom is gonna work. And instead, Jesus takes the whole power pyramid and he turns it upside down. And he says, yeah, you know, I am the king. In my kingdom, I'm the king but I use my power and authority to serve you. And then I ask you to use your power and your authority to serve others. That's how my kingdom's gonna be. And Jesus cast vision for a new way of viewing power and authority. Power and authority are not to be used for ourselves, it's to be used for others. Power and authority is not to be used to get, it's to be used to give in a way to help others. And then it's, it's like, just to make sure, just to make sure they got it. Jesus continued and he said one more thing. This is verse 45. For even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus points to himself as the ultimate example of a humble person who self-sacrificially serves others. And, 
And what's important about this last statement is that Jesus clearly identifies who he is. When he calls himself the son of man throughout his ministry, he calls himself either the son of man or he refers to himself as the son of God. That is who he is. And so he's identifying himself in this verse. Yes, I am the son of man. I'm the son of God. That is who I am. There's no one who has a greater role or title than me. I have more power than anyone. I have more authority than anyone. And then Jesus says, but I'm going to use my power and my authority to become a ransom, to pay your sin debt and my sin debt so that we can all be forgiven of our sins and have eternal life. You see, I didn't come to be served. I'm not that kind of king. I came to be a king who serves. And if you're going to follow me, if you're going to be in my movement, you're going to be a part of my kingdom. I'm asking you to use your authority and your power to serve too. And with this one ultimate humble act of self-sacrifice, Jesus forever turned the power pyramid upside down. No one else had ever taught such a radical thing about the characteristics of humility and servanthood. I mean, here, Jesus historically redefines greatness. Now, Jesus makes humility great. Jesus makes servanthood great. Jesus makes self-sacrifice great. Jesus turns humility from a vice into a virtue. And City Church, City Church, we've got to get this. We've got to get this virtue in our lives, every aspect of our lives, in every relationship. This is the virtue that will change the nature of all of our relationships. Couples, humility is what will make your marriage great. Parents, humility is what will make your family great. Bosses, humility is what will make your workplace great. Teachers, humility is what will make our schools great. And to my friends in law enforcement, humility is what will make our communities great. And with this radical teaching, this radical new way of viewing power and authority and greatness, Jesus forever changed human history. And I'm not just saying that because I'm a pastor and I, I believe in Jesus. I'm saying to you, historians recognize this. And so a team of researchers in the Department of Ancient History of Macquarie University in Australia spent years poring over ancient documents that over and over for, for hundreds of years showed how in ancient history, no one valued humility. It was a despised characteristic, but there was a certain point in human history where it all changed. And as these researchers poured through thousands and thousands of documents, they discovered that the turning point, the pivotal moment in human history related to humility landed with Jesus. Dr. John Dixon was one of the researchers on that project. He wrote a great book about the, the implications of what they discovered in a book called Humilitas. And in that book, he says this. The conclusion was clear. The modern Western fondness for humility almost certainly derives from the peculiar impact, there's the impact, on Europe by Jesus. This is not a religious conclusion, but a historical finding. Today, it doesn't matter what your religious views are. Christian, atheist, Jedi Knight, 
If you were raised in the West, you are likely to think that honor seeking is morally questionable and lowering yourself for the good of others is ethically beautiful. That is the influence of a story about greatness that willingly went to a cross. Folks, the reason we value humility is Jesus. The reason we value servanthood is Jesus. The reason we value self-sacrificial service with our power and our authority, it's Jesus. And I propose to you, I propose to you that Jesus, the Son of God, used all of his power and authority to change forever the way people viewed humility and servanthood because of who he is. He's the Son of God who gave his life as a ransom for you and for me. That's why I believe in him and I follow him. And I ask you to believe in him and to follow him too. Will you pray with me? And if you're ready to put your trust in Jesus as the son of God, I'll lead you in a little prayer to help you just solidify that in your life. Are you ready? Please repeat after me. God, I do believe in you. And I believe Jesus is your son. And I believe he gave his life as a ransom to pay for my sins. And so I ask you to forgive me of my sins and to make me your child. Thank you. And then for all of us who are followers of Jesus, Lord, my prayer is that you would help us really grasp this view of power that you you taught your followers. And help us to discern in all of our different relationships and in all of the roles of authority we have. Help us to discern how to use our power and our authority in a way that serves others instead of ourselves. And let that reflect the beauty of your love and your grace and your teachings in our world. Help us to make our world a better place. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.